we have been taking a journey through the biblical narrative. And we have um, started in January in Genesis, and we've made it all the way to, into David's life. And if you haven't been paying attention, you may not have observed this, but I'll point it out to you anyhow. Uh, I have, we've slowed the story down. We were, we were, it's a lot of story to tell in the Bible anyhow, but we slowed the story down when we got to David. And part of that is because I really like David's story. My team could tell you, uh, I've talked about doing a, I'd love, love to do like a 35-week series on David. We're not doing that. We'll be done in like 13, 14 weeks here, uh, which is almost, we're almost there now. We're almost done now with David. But I could have gone a lot longer than this. We've skipped so many interesting stories and characters in his life. I enjoy this time period, not just because of who David is, but because of all the surrounding cast and characters. I've always said that someone should make a really good Netflix series out of David's life and all the people in the story around him, his children, everything. I think you could make at least three seasons out of it, and it would be maybe more. It's just full of good material. We've kind of zoomed through it slower than we were going earlier, but faster than I'd like to go, just so we won't be in David for two years, right? So uh, as we move through it today, we've made our way towards the end of David's life. Last week, we met some of his children, particularly his son, Absalom. Now, who is Absalom? Absalom is the oldest, no, I'm sorry, Absalom is the third oldest son of David's. He has lots of kids, Absalom's mom was a daughter of a king from the land of Geshur, and um, she came and married David in an alliance. He was David's third-born son, and, and Absalom has a sister named Tamar. It's his full sister because he also has a lot of half-brothers and sisters because obviously there's lots of moms in the picture, a lot of, lots of wives for David. So most of the siblings are half-siblings, same dad, different mom. But Absalom and Tamar are full siblings, and um, he's the third oldest of his father's children. Well, we saw last week that David, I'm sorry, that Absalom's older brother, half-brother Amnon, who was known as Prince Amnon, the oldest son, of the kingdom, the heir apparent to the throne. He really loved his half-sister Tamar, or thought he did, felt he'd lusted after her, and he raped her. And, uh, and she was devastated. She never recovered from this. The rest of her life was impacted living in her brother's house. Uh, just never got her feet under her after that horrible situation. But Absalom was furious, but he waited for some justice to be executed against his older brother. He waited for it. And for two years, nothing happened. For two years, the king did nothing about it at all. And after two long years, Absalom took matters into his own hands. He threw a party for his siblings on a special day away from Jerusalem, and he had his men kill his older brother Amnon. And then he fled the country. He went back to live with his grandparents in the land of Geshur, where his, his mama came from, king of Geshur. And he went in exile. And David the king mourned the death of his oldest son. He mourned him, but he also missed Absalom. He understood why Absalom did what he did, as nothing had been done about Amnon's terrible crime. And now Absalom is gone and David's missing him. But Absalom doesn't know that. David doesn't communicate that. And David makes the mistake that so many, I think, parents make and so many um, 
so many people, um, you know, in, in their friendships or relationships, when, so, when there's a rift there, and instead of getting in front of it or, or talking it out or having a conversation, they just left un, things left unsaid so that our minds can fill in the gaps with the worst possible uh, reasons. And David doesn't tell Absalom that he misses him. He doesn't send a word for him. He, just, he misses him, but he lets him go without telling him. And so Absalom is away from home for three years, struggling, struggling because he feels like dad doesn't care. And the bitterness that has to be setting in to think my brother could rape my sister and nothing is done for him, to him. For two years he walks around free in Jerusalem, but I go off and get some justice. I avenge her and here I am living in a foreign land for three years. Obviously it's not the same. Now again, he doesn't know that something bad would have happened had he stayed there, but dad's silence makes him think I'm not wanted. And so Absalom lives in this faraway place and his, his um, heart is getting worse all the time. And that's where we left off the story and we pick it up today. Uh, one of the major characters in the story is Joab. We have met Joab. He's the commander of David's army. I, I have skipped a lot of Joab's stories. He deserves a whole character arc himself. Some neat things. But he's a great warrior. Him and David have had a bumpy road a couple times, but largely he's been loyal to David. And he sees that David wants to bring Absalom back home, but David's not doing anything about it. So he basically puts a plan into place to get David to basically admit that he wants his son back. And it works, and David calls Joab in and says, thank you, bring my son home. And Absalom, Joab's thrilled, he goes back, sends word, Absalom is brought back to Israel after three long years, but he's not brought to his father. He's told to go to his house and wait there. Still not seen dad. And for basically two more years, Absalom lives in a form of house arrest. He's not in the city of, I mean, he's out in his fields, out in the suburb area of Jerusalem, but he's not back in the royal city. He's not at the palace. He's not seen his dad. And two more years pass by. Think about that, folks. That means that before this is over, it's been five years since he's seen his father, the king. Three years in exile, two years at home, not welcomed. And, and two years before that, since his sister was assaulted. So seven years have gone by since things went south. Nothing. Basically, uh, what happens in the end is Absalom decides it's time to do something about it. So he antagonizes Joab, who lives near him, and provokes him. It's a funny story. I just can't get into it for sake of time. But he, he stirs the pot pretty hard and gets Joab upset. And Joab finally, out of frustration, gives Absalom an audience with his father. And we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 14, 33. Then at last, David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king. And the king kissed him. So he comes into David's presence like a subject, bowing before the king, wondering if he's going to get justice executed against him for what he did years ago. And David, of course, responds as a father. But there's been this really weird dynamic that we could explore that we don't have time for, where he calls his dad, years ago, five years earlier when he last saw his dad, he called him the king, and dad called him my son. And so this, this relationship has been fragmented for years now. And he has this audience, and, and then they leave, and it's just awkward. They leave. They go their separate ways, and there's no real record of any more communication between the two of them. But it's an important moment in one sense. It gets Absalom back into the royal palace. It gets him back into the courtyard. It gets him back into mainstream 
culture of Israel instead of being an outcast. But the two of them just go their separate ways. And by this point, Absalom's heart is toxic. It is upset. He's offended at all that has happened and believes his dad is no longer fit. Now, a couple things about Absalom that we skipped. I want to show them to you back in verse 25. It says, Now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. So uh, apparently that he made time life's uh, 100 sexiest men in, in Israel. He was number one. He was a cover magazine guy. Uh, this was Absalom. I mean, uh, he, no, no flaws in Absalom apparently, right? And um, he was, this is a beautiful family. Can we be real? I mean, David was a good-looking guy. Early on, he married some beautiful women, the stories tell us. This is the Camelot era of Israel. It's JFK and Jackie. This is the whole uh, beautiful people everywhere running the place and celebrity-looking folks who are in charge. And this is Israel's golden era. But Absalom stood out above all the rest as uh, the most handsome. So I don't know what prize you get for that. But it says in verse 26 that he cut his hair only once a year and then only because it was so heavy, and he weighed, he weighed it out, it came to five pounds. So that's an interesting detail, but one that will be important later. But uh, he grew, his hair grew very quickly, apparently, and very thick. I don't know if any of you are jealous of that. You know, someone, their hair grows fast, but apparently he was Fabio, you know. I can't believe it's not butter. But anyhow, he is just, um, he's got a lot of hair. And some of you didn't get that reference because you're not old. That's okay. Um, <laughs> he had three sons and one daughter. His daughter's name was Tamar, and she was very beautiful. It's interesting that he names his daughter after his sister who had been mistreated. And there's been a lot of years. In fact, from the time that his sister Tamar was abused until the time that Absalom's going to do the main thing that's going to happen in today's story later, 11 years pass. And somewhere along the lines, he has some kids. He's got a family of his own. He names his daughter after his sister in honor of her as he takes care of her. But Absalom doesn't think his dad is fit to lead the kingdom anymore. And he decides it's time for an overthrow. It's time for a change of leadership. The problem is you just can't do that quickly. It takes a long, patient, and cunning plan. So Absalom begins. Chapter 15 and verse 1 says, After this, Absalom bought a chariot and horses. And he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. So he gets an advanced team. You know, he got his little, his entourage, his campaign team to make him look like, wow, he's somebody. Look at all the people with Absalom. And they kind of go around wherever he's at. And he got up early. This is impressive. He got up early every morning. And he went out to the gate of the city every morning. And when the people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask them where in Israel they were from and they would tell him their tribe. So let me break that down a little bit for us. That all of Israel, wherever you lived in the whole land of Israel, if you had a local problem and the local authorities didn't satisfy it, a civil matter to your satisfaction, you'd have to appeal to a higher court. Perhaps the local leaders were the problem to you. You had to appeal to a higher court. And so the highest court in the land is, is the king. They come to King David, and David could be the one to settle these matters. But the problem is it's a big kingdom, and David's one man, so it's hard to get an audience, yet people would show up to the city hoping to get the king's attention to help them in their circumstance. But Absalom would every morning, 
day after day, get up early and spend the whole day out of the main gate of the fortress city. And he would wait for people to arrive and he would say, where are you from? Are you from Dan? Are you from, are you from Simeon? Are you from, are you, from uh, you know, the land of Benjamin? Or, or, or where are you from, Naphtali? They would tell him and he'd say, what's your, what's your story? Why are you here? And then when they would tell him why they came, then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. So, you know, he's either sending them away discouraged with the king or he's saying, you'll find out. You'll get in there and you'll figure it out. The king just can't handle all the people. But I'm here. It's too bad the king is too old or too out of touch or too incapable. But I wish he could help you because you got a good case here. And then Absalom would add this. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment and I would give them justice. If I was in charge, if I was in charge, things would be done better. We'd be more efficient. We'd streamline some processes, right? We'd have have some, some fresh ideas and things would be better. If only I was the judge, if I was the king. And when people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. He'd say, no, 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 no. And he would just, we're gonna, I know I'm the prince and I'm the privileged, but we're equals. And he would greet them like equals. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Because people would go back maybe unsatisfied with the result of their visit to Jerusalem, but they'd go back with Absalom's name on their lips. Because, well, I met him, he's a great kid. And he, he heard me out, he listened, and he, you know. And, and Absalom does this, this is impressive. Every day, early in the morning, throughout the day, for four years, that takes some resolve. That takes some commitment. No paycheck involved in this. It's just a four-year, day-upon-day, long, consistent, low-time-preference, you know, plan. And after four long years, Absalom's ready to put his plan into action finally. It, so he goes to David, basically says to David, I need to, I need to take a trip down to Hebron. Now, I know that everyone here doesn't care about the geographical aspect of the story, but I've tried to remind you, and for those who do care, let me take a minute here to remind you of, of how the, this whole thing looks. Um, Israel is, is a nation of 12 conglomerate tribes that were uh, formed together to form a centralized government. And Judah is the southern tribe. It's the biggest one. That's where David was from. And when David first became king, he was only king of Judah for a while. And he centered himself in the center of the tribe of Judah in a city called Hebron. But once he became king of all of Israel, he he wanted to move closer to the north side of of Judah to be closer to the center of the whole country. So they had captured the city of Jerusalem, the fortress city, and and he moved the capital up there to be more central to the nation. And that's where he governed from. But Absalom says, I want to go back to where we were before this. I want to go back to to Hebron for something. And so he goes and he heads a separate way with his dad's blessing. And there's where Absalom puts his plan into place. Verse 9, so Absalom went to Hebron, but while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. He has messengers on the prowl saying, hey, you've heard me for four years. You've watched me campaign. You know, it's time out with the old, in with the new. 
You know, we got a, we got a better future here. We need to make some changes in Israel. And so he sends the word everywhere and stirs up a rebellion. And I don't have time to tell you all the major players that join Absalom, but I want to point out one to you because it's interesting. In verse 12, it says, he sent for Ahithophel, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo. Now, Ahithophel is an interesting name. I want to point him out to you here. Ahithophel is the father of one of David's mighty men named Eliam, one of David's elite soldiers. And Ahithophel is the grandpa of Eliam's daughter, Bathsheba. Ahithophel, Ahithophel is, is Bathsheba's, or Bathsheba is Ahithophel, how's that work? Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandpa. And so that means that Uriah the Hittite, who is also one of David's elite soldiers, he must have been on the battlefield with Eliam, meets his daughter Bathsheba, marries her, and David knows the whole family. He knows Uriah. He knows Eliam from the battlefield. He knows, he knows Ahithophel, his trusted counselor. But when he meets Bathsheba and lusts after her and takes her for himself and has her husband killed in battle, how does that settle with a family? How does that settle with someone like Eliam? That was his daughter and his son-in-law. How does that settle with Ahithophel? That's his granddaughter and his grandson-in-law. And yes, Bathsheba's brought into the royal family and David takes care of her as one of his wives. And so it's in Ahithophel's best interest for the kingdom to flourish for his family's sake. And he's good at his job as an advisor, but I wonder how much that got under his skin for the next almost 20 years that that whole thing went down that way. But he serves the kingdom for his family's sake. He's good at his job. But now Absalom throws a rebellion and Ahithophel is asked to come join him. And he's like, you better believe it. And he joins Absalom. And soon many others also joined Absalom and the conspiracy gained momentum. Well, back in Jerusalem, it says, meanwhile, a messenger arrived in Jerusalem to tell David uh, that uh, all of Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. It doesn't mean every person in Israel. What it means is that throughout the whole land, lots of people are behind Absalom. We got a real problem. We have a civil war brewing. Your son's revolting against you. And David's reaction in verse 14, then we must flee at once or it will be too late. David urged his men. Hurry, he says. If we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. Now, that's an interesting context when you think about it. I just want to parse this out a little bit. You could make an argument that David was actually better off living in Jerusalem, staying in Jerusalem. Because to leave the city is to leave the protection of the city. Remember that Jerusalem is a fortress city. That's why they wanted it as the capital in the first place. It's always hard to conquer a city, especially one like Jerusalem. For David to leave the fortress city and to take, he takes his wives with him. He takes some of his concubines with him. Takes his children, takes some of his key people and his men who can travel, who can, some of his key soldiers. And to leave in, in that entourage, you can only move so fast. And if you're being chased by an enemy army, they could probably gain ground on you. Why leave the fortress city where the chances of putting up a defense for yourself are better? 
But David understood that if he stayed there, he doesn't know how big the revolt is. Are there people in the city who are part of Absalom's plan? And here's the thing. If for some reason he fights in the city and Absalom wins and David loses, then David will be killed there, yes. That could happen anyhow. But also, if he stays in Jerusalem and loses, many people in the city will be harmed and killed as well. And it will be disaster for Jerusalem. And even if he wins, but a siege takes place, harm will be done to Jerusalem. Here's the thing. David loves Jerusalem. He's been his, his, his crown jewel, his capital city, his palace is built there. He's brought the tabernacle there. The Ark of the Covenant of God is there, thanks to David. He actually calls Jerusalem the city of David. Now, history, centuries later, would take that title away and, and call Bethlehem the city of David because that's where he was born. But at this port of history, David called Jerusalem the city of David. He loved the place. And he says, if I stay here, I might be able to defend myself better, but it will be worse for the city I love. But if I leave, hit the road, I can spare a lot of people some heartache. Even if it's not best for me, it's definitely best for everyone. And he leaves. And people begin to flood out of the city to join him. And he begins to tell people, go back, it's okay. Some people come with me, others go back and stay here. And, and one of those stories is a man named Ittai. Ittai is not from Israel. Ittai and his men are from the Philistine land of Gath. And they are exiles hiding out in Jerusalem because they are at war with their own country. So they're staying there in exile. And David can relate to that because David, when he was younger, before he was king, was once in exile with his men in Gath. So now he has people from Gath in exile with him in Jerusalem. And as David leaves the city, those men come out to join him and to protect him. But David looks at them and says, no, 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 no. Verse number 19, the king turned to Ittai and said, a leader from the men of Gath, he says, why are you coming with us? Go on back to King Absalom. Notice that he calls him King Absalom. He doesn't just say that rebel Absalom, that punk Absalom. He's go back to, I've left the throne, I've left the city. Go back to the new king. Go back to King Absalom. For you are a guest in Israel. You're a foreigner in exile yourself. In other words, you're already in exile. You've already run from far from home. Why do you want to be on the run with me? Like in exile, within exile, you know? Like seriously, the king, will, the Absalom will be good to you. Just go back and take it easy. It's not fair to you. He says, you have only arrived recently. And should I force you today to wander with us? I don't even know where we will go. Go on back and take your kinsmen with you. And may the Lord show you his unfailing love and his faithfulness. And David is saying to people who could really help him right now, some, some forces that could really help him. He's like, guys, Go back. It's okay. You know, don't, my problems don't need to be your problems. Even if though you would help me, it's not fair to you. Now, many people did go back at David's plea, but not this guy. This guy is going to pull the old uh, Ruth and Naomi line, okay? Here's what Ittai says. But Ittai said to the king, I vow by the Lord and by your own life that I will go wherever my lord the king goes, no matter what happens, whether it means life or death, you're not getting rid of me. So he went with David. But David tried to, to take care of him. And I want you to see something that David is doing right here because it's instructive to all of us. As we've seen the story unpack as David is running, we see that David put the needs of others above his own. He said, it might be best for me in the fortress city, but I'm going to let Jerusalem 
stay away from the bloodbath of my, of my defense. I'm gonna leave for the sake of them. And, and if he, I would be helpful to me with his men, they're great soldiers, but, but they don't need to take my problems as their own. Yes, they stayed with him, but he tried to say, take care of yourselves and don't worry about me. David put the needs of others above his own. And that's hard to do when you're in trouble. When you're in trouble, it's easy to say, look, I normally am a caring person, but right now I gotta do what's best for me. But David said, what's best for Jerusalem? What's best for Ittai? What's best for people is what's best, not just what's best for me. And he put the needs of others above his own. It's a lesson that he's learned in life the hard way. In fact, something else happens, and before we get to it, let me just give you the backstory. Uh, also, out of the city comes uh, the Ark of the Covenant. The priests bring the Ark of God out to David, and they want to come and, um, uh, and bring him this, this tool, this Ark of, of the Lord, which is honestly a nice thing for David to have the Ark of the Lord with him. Because if the Ark comes and joins him, it's a symbol of God's presence. Honestly, some people won't attack if the Ark of God's there because they're kind of spiritual, not superstitious, the spiritual stitious about the ark. You're not going to attack the ark. Um, or some people would even join David if the ark is there because they're going to fight for the ark. So David could really help himself by saying, yes, the ark goes with me. But David realizes that's not right selfishly. So here's what he does. Verse 25, then the king said to Zadok, the priest, take the ark of God back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, he'll bring me back to see the ark in the tabernacle again. He says, the ark does not just belong to me. Yes, it would be a nice tool to have out here in battle, but that's making it all about me. The ark belongs to all the people. It belongs to the city of Jerusalem. I put the tabernacle there. It belongs to the people who, who to pilgrimage to Jerusalem to make offerings to the Lord and meet him there. And while I can sit there and make it all about me, because let's be honest now, all of us, we are... We are the center of our own universe. We are the center of our own story, right? Like everyone else around us, they are just supporting act characters in our story. And, and God's working is about me and the world and my narrative sometimes in our, our own selfish minds. And David could have said, the ark of God is for my protection. I, I want God's blessing for me. But he said, this belongs to everyone. And I'm not gonna sabotage this thing for selfish reasons. There's more going on in the world than just my kingdom. Send it back to Jerusalem where it belongs. Because again, he's putting the needs of others above his own. It's amazing. And then he says, if the Lord sees fit, he'll bring me back to see the ark. I hope he does. I hope, he do. I hope I get a chance again to see the tabernacle again. But then he adds, but if God is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. If God's done with me, that's okay too. I, whatever God has in mind, I hope to come back. I hope to survive. But if God is done, I accept that. Maybe that just needs to be what I'm at peace with. And what David's doing is not only is he putting the needs of others above his own, but David put things in God's hands. He's I'm just going to trust it there. I'm going to trust that God will take care. And if he doesn't, then what's my hope anyhow? So I'm just going gonna, gonna to rest in him. He used to do that. And he's learned to, to do it again. Now don't take me wrong. Don't take me wrong. David is not giving up. <laughs> no, he's not. David is actually, actually going to put some 
things into place. In fact, about this time in the story, someone tells David that Ahithophel, his old advisor, is now helping Absalom. And David is heartbroken by that because he trusted Ahithophel implicitly. And no doubt Bathsheba is one of the wives that's with David as they leave the city. That's her grandpa. And, and what is he sorting? And maybe he's even making the connection. Is there an old wound that's been festering there a long time? I don't know what he's thinking. But one thing David for sure is thinking is this is bad news because Ahithophel was good at his job. And if Ahithophel is helping you, you got some good advice and half the battle is strategy, right? And Ahithophel being with Absalom is trouble, trouble, trouble for David and his future. So David turns to one of his old friends, a man named Hushai. Hushai was also one of David's advisors, and he's an older man. He's come out to travel with David, and David's like, no, 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 Hushai, go back to the city. You're too old to travel with me. I'm with you. You're my friend. I know you're my friend, but go back to the city. Here's how you can help me. He says, go back and present yourself to my son and offer to be his counselor. And maybe he'll listen to you and you can counteract some of Ahithophel's advice before Ahithophel hurts us. So Hushai goes back to the city and David says to him, I sent the priest back with the Ark of the Covenant. Go to them when you have intel and tell their two young adult sons, Jonathan, Abiathar, tell the, 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 the young adult boys to, to hear the, the intel from you and then to leave the city and find me and bring me updates on what's going on at the palace. So Hushai goes back to the city and presents himself to Absalom once he gets there. And he's like, I thought you were David's friend. I'm the, I'm the supporter of whoever's the king. I'll serve you as I served your father. And he goes back to the city to do that. Well, David is heartbroken. He continues to leave. And as they walk down the road out of Jerusalem, out of the suburbs of Jerusalem, people around the area line the streets to watch David leave. And David is weeping. His family is weeping. And people are weeping with them because it's a tragic moment. There's a mutiny. The king is on exile. His own son is turned against him. And people, the shock, can picture the shock nationally of watching the king walking away from his throne and in tears and just being done. Is such a jarring thing that everyone is heartbroken to watch him go. But as he gets out of the suburbs of Jerusalem, and as he gets closer to the rest of Israel where he goes to hide, he passes through the land of Benjamin where he has some people who not everyone loves him there. And some people come around and they begin to mock him and his entourage as they walk past. One particular guy in particular throwing stones and dirt at David as they're, as they're walking away in, in tears and in shame. And they're throwing stones and saying, good, you deserve what's coming to you. And bringing up his failures of his past and, and making up things he never even did. And, and blaming stuff on him and saying, you know, lying and exaggerating and saying, I'm glad your son revolted. Yay, Absalom. Ha ha, David, I hope you die. And, and David's men are like, let me go kill some people. And David's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I got bigger problems than this. I'm going to put that in God's hands too. God, maybe God will hear that. And I'm not going to, let's just keep walking. And as they walked in grief, people taunted. And some, especially one particular person taunted and gave him a hard time. But meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, verse 15, meanwhile, Absalom and all the army of Israel arrived at Jerusalem accompanied by Ahithophel, his new right-hand man. And they arrive without bloodshed. Think about that. They, they, they came with soldiers ready to fight. 
And they walked in ready to kill if necessary to win. And David abdicated to spare the bloodshed. David walked away. And so they walked in without killing anyone and just took the throne. That was easy. That was easy. In verse 20, then Absalom turned to Ahithophel and asked him, what, what should I do next? Now what? Interesting advice. Ahithophel told him, go and sleep with your father's concubines, for he has left them here to look after the palace. David took his wives and some of his concubines with him, but he left 10 behind to watch the palace. Remember I told you wives and concubines are a little different. Both were intimate with David and bore children for David, but concubines weren't exactly wives. They were more like maids with benefits. Benefits, you know. Anyhow, but anyhow, so he leaves 10 behind to watch the palace. And David leaves with his, with his rest of his family. And, and Ahithophel says, take these women that belong to David and sleep with them. Now, you have to understand something. This is something that happened in ancient warfare. This is something that happened. That kings would conquer other kings. And when they conquered them, one of the things they would do is they would sleep with their women. To basically subjugate uh, the situation and show their domination over the king that they've conquered by doing that. And so, but people weren't sure that would happen here because this is a father-son deal. Like, people have to wonder, do I even get involved? Will dad and son make up one day? So everyone's on the fence. So Ahithophel says, no, you go in and you do this to your father's concubines. It's, it's brutal. But here's why. Then all of Israel will know that you've insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation. And they will throw their support to you. When you do that dominating act, it'll 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 rip the chances of any hope that you and your dad can make up. And everyone will know we're not playing games here and they'll get behind you. And Absalom's like, cool idea. So they set up a tent. Check it out. They set up a tent on the palace roof where everyone could see it, where the whole city could see it. And Absalom went in and had sex with his father's concubines. Right there on the palace roof with a vantage point. He could see, they could see the whole city, the whole city could see them. David knew that all too well, didn't he? He knew about the palace roof and his views. And here, Ahithophel, I wonder if Ahithophel's doing this to make a point. Like, uh-huh, you take someone, I remember his, his granddaughter, and, and sleep with her in private, but, but here's, here's the thing, 10 times over, pal. And so right there in the palace roof, people can't see what's happening in the tent, but they can see who's being ushered into the tent, and they know what's going on. And these poor girls, I say it all the time, almost every week, but women are so mistreated in this part of history. It's terrible to see them just treated like, like pawns in these men's power play. It's a terrible story. But Absalom does his thing right there on the roof of the palace in that tent. Verse 23 says that Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice, just as David had done. For every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as though it had come directly from the mouth of God. In other words, Ahithophel was so not good as a person anymore, but good at his job, effective at his job, that David trusted him implicitly, and now Absalom trusted him because when he spoke, it was the best idea. When he spoke, it was going to work to its end. And they're listening to him. Well, that brings us to our last story for the day in chapter 17. Verse 1. Now Ahithophel urged Absalom. 
He said, let me choose 12,000 men to start out after David tonight. I was like, Absalom, you can stay here in your new palace. That's all yours. Let me take, I'll leave the army. Give me 12,000 men right now and take off after David while he's running. He said, I will catch up with him while he is weary and he's discouraged. He and his troops will panic and everyone will run away. And then I will kill only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride returns to her husband. After all, it's only one man's life that you seek. Then you'll be at peace with all the people. Ahithophel is saying to, to Absalom, look, you stay here. I'll get after him while he's running. A few people might stick around and guard him when I catch up. The rest will scatter. I won't kill a lot of people. I'll kill only the ones who won't let me get to David. I'm only after one person. I'll kill David. Because let's be honest, Absalom, there's only one person you want to see dead. And that's your dad. And guess what? I do too. So I'll get him and I'll bring everyone back to you because you want them back and you could be their king and they'll be your subjects. Don't worry, let me handle it. And this plan was a good plan. In fact, it says in verse four, the plan seemed good to Absalom and all the elders of Israel because it was a good plan. And if they would have done this plan, it no doubt would have worked out the way that Ahithophel was planning it to work out because it was a good plan. But Absalom, before he does it, makes one more decision. Absalom says, I want to talk to David's other advisor who pledged his support. I want to talk to Hushai. So he goes to Hushai and says, you know, Ahithophel says I should do this. What are your thoughts? And here's Hushai's opportunity. Verse number seven. Well, Hushai replied to Absalom, well, this time... Ahithophel has made a mistake. He's smart. He's good at what he does. But listen carefully. He's made a mistake this time. Why? Why is that a mistake? Well, here's why. Because you know your father and his men. They are mighty warriors. And right now they are as enraged as a mother bear who has been robbed of her cubs. And remember that your father is an experienced man of war. He won't be spending the night among the troops. He's probably already hidden in some pit or cave. And when he comes out and attacks and a few of your men fall, there will be a panic among your troops and the word will spread that Absalom's men are being slaughtered. Then even the bravest soldiers, though they have the heart of a lion, will be paralyzed with fear. For all Israel knows what a mighty warrior your father is and how courageous his men are. So no, I don't think Ahithophel's advice is a good idea for you to go after him all half-cocked like that. Because if it goes bad a little bit, everyone's going to fall apart, and he's going to win, and he's going to get the throne back. So I have a better idea, Hushai says. I recommend that you mobilize the entire army of Israel bringing them from as far away as Dan in the north and Beersheba in the south. That way you'll have an army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. What he's saying is this. He's saying it'll take a few extra days to get it done. It'll take a few extra days to get everyone here, but that's okay. Because we'll send word quickly. And let's get a bigger army gathered together. So that way, when, if David has a little bit of a victory in the skirmish, no one's intimidated because our army's so big. So let's wait a couple days and get the people together. And then we'll go there and overwhelm him. And he says, I advise that you personally lead the troops. I know what Hithophel said, you stay here in the city and he take care of it. 
but Hithophel is wrong. You need to go personally lead the troops because David's going to be leading his side. And they need to see you as the leader on their side. You shouldn't be back here. You should be in the front leading the men. So you go. And he says, when we find David, we'll fall on him like dew that falls on the ground. Then neither he or any of his men will be left alive. And if David were to escape into some town, you'll have all Israel there at your command. Then we can take ropes and drag the walls of that town into the nearest valley until every stone is torn down. Whoa, Hushai. Tough talk there. Like, wow. You really want to get David, don't you, it seems. In fact, it says in verse 14, then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, oh, Hushai's advice is better than Ahithophel's. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. But they're all like, Hushai's advice is better than Ahithophel's. Why? For the Lord had determined this is important. For the Lord had determined to defeat the council of Ahithophel, which really was the better plan, so that he could bring disaster on Absalom. Because God's not going to bless this rebellion. Though Absalom was un understandably upset about things that had happened in the past, he was doing the wrong thing. And so Ahithophel's better advice is ignored. And Hushai has a chance Hushai has a chance to go to the tabernacle and tell Zadok the priest and, and, and to send the two young men, two of the sons there, uh, on this trip to tell David the latest intel. And these boys leave the city. I told you earlier, there are so many sub-stories I wish I had time to share today, but I don't. Here's one of them. You gotta read, that's why you got to read these things for yourself. There's so many juicy tidbits. But these boys leave the city to bring the latest news as spies to David. And some of Absalom's people see them and send soldiers to capture or kill them. And these two young men run. It's a whole adventure. They hide in wells. They're hidden by people who are sympathetic towards David. And they narrowly get away. And they finally make it to David with an update. And David is able to prepare for what's coming next and plan accordingly. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, it says, When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, let me, let me tease that out a little. When Ahithophel realized that his better advice that would have probably worked had not been followed. When Ahithophel realized, let's go back here. When Ahithophel realized, can we go back one screen? That's too late, that's okay. Um, when Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, when Ahithophel realized that the better plan, his plan, was not being executed, when Ahithophel realized that, that um, Hushai's inferior plan was put into motion, and when he realized that it probably wasn't going to work, in fact, when he probably suspected that Hushai was secretly helping David in what he was planning to do, And that probably means that it's not going to work. And David has a chance of winning now. When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, it says that he saddled his donkey. He went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there and was buried in the family tomb. Because Ahithophel realizes if my plan isn't followed and, and, and David somehow wins now, there's no future for me. First of all, maybe he's even getting back at David for what happened 20 years earlier with his granddaughter. Who knows if that's a thing or not? I don't know. 
But if that was the case for all those years, his big moment to do something has fallen flat. Or maybe he's just upset because he thought he had a, a chance to back the winning horse by getting behind Absalom and a fresh start. But now he's already been supplanted by David's other advisor whose advice was followed. Or maybe it was his pride. Or maybe he realizes if David wins, traitors like me don't survive in the end. Either way, Ahithophel says, it's over for me. He goes home and sets his affairs in order, wonders what happened, looks back over those years, and then he hangs himself. Because Ahithophel suspects it's not going to go well. Is he right or is he wrong? Well, I wish we had time to find out today. But I knew this would be a two-parter when I wrote it because there's just too much going on here. So we'll finish part two next week. And it's going to be a battlefield and bloodshed and victories and defeats and chaos and struggle and success. Yeah, blood! We'll finish, pretty much almost finish David's life next week. Before today, we'll leave off in part one. And I want to send you home with two little simple thoughts that we've already seen. And I want to remind you what they are real quick here. I said earlier that David put his put the needs of others above his own, and David put things in God's hands. That David said, it's better for Jerusalem that I'm not there. So I'll leave, even though it's a fortress city, to spare the bloodshed so the Absalom won't come in with swords ablazing. I'll send other people back to keep them out of my trouble, even if they'd be helpful to me. I'll send the Ark of God back, though it could be a good tool in my arsenal, because I don't need to do what's best for me. What's best for people is what's best. I'll put the needs of others above my own. Even though I'm in a bad spot, it could justify selfish motives. And David put things in God's hands. If God wants to bring me back, he will. I don't have to do something wrong towards others or wrong in general to, to make, manipulate my victory. I'll put it in God's hands. If God brings me back, he can do that. And if God is done with me, I accept that. And those two pieces of advice that David followed, I want them to speak into your story today, whatever your story is. Whether you're going through something as a, you know, in your marriage or with your children or with your parents or with your relatives or in your workplace, your job or your business that you started or in your finances or in your health or in some other relationship of yours. If you're going through a struggle, a tough spot in your life, and it's easy to say, look, I normally treat people right and do right by other people, but right now it's all about me. I got to look out for me. And so who cares if I mistreat others because I got to take care of me. Well, I just would encourage us to follow David's example of putting the needs of others above our own. Don't ever let our struggles be an excuse to mistreat or misuse people. That's not right. Or to do unethical things or wrong things to, to get an advantage that I know is not right, but I, I gotta do what I gotta do. But put things in God's hands. And wherever you are, whatever your struggle looks like today, I don't know what that means exactly for you, but here's what I wanna say to you today. That one simple thought to take home. It's not complicated. It's not even that deep. But I want you to remember it today. And that is this. When you put everything in God's hands, when you put everything in God's hands, you're in good hands. When you put everything in God's hands, you're in good hands. And I know the temptation to say, no, 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 because he might, I got to do something that he wouldn't approve of because that's what I got to do to get ahead. I understand the temptation for that. I understand the human uh, push to go that route sometimes. But what, are things really better with my own machinations or are they better? Trusting God. 
And I know it's something to say, well, who cares how it's affecting us other people? This is my story, my situation. But whatever's happening in your life, I'm just saying do right by others and do right before God. And put the outcomes into his hands. And if it doesn't turn out the way you want it to in the end, if it doesn't turn out the way you want it to in the end, at some point you gotta say, God, maybe that's your will. Right? Like if God, if God can't take care of me, I'm in trouble anyhow. And if God chooses not, if God has a different plan, it's gonna go that way anyhow. So I might as well trust myself in God's hands and not do things that take matters into my own hands. That doesn't mean I don't try, do what I can do, but I won't do wrong towards others or in any way. I'm gonna put those things in God's hands and trust him. Trusting God in your story is a big idea. Learning to rest in him. And I know it may not be easy depending on what you're facing today, but I have news for you. When you put everything in God's hands, you're in good hands.